Hello, and welcome to Eagle Alpha's Profiting from Data podcast. Our podcast series focuses on the most important topics in alternative data with industry-leading experts as featured guests. Your hosts are Eagle Alpha subject matter thought leaders who lead these lively and informative discussions. Please enjoy this and all episodes of Profiting from Data. For today, we are going to look at, I guess, the last six months and legal and compliance trend and themes. As I guess, recap on them and sort of look ahead over the next six months as well. So, delighted to be joined by Peter Green, Ben Cozen. Peter, I'll pass over to you. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks very much for having us. Always happy to to do these and, and grateful for our relationship with you all. And we'll touch on a couple of things, I think, as we as we riff for a half hour or so here that you just touched upon. I think Ben and I agree. It certainly it makes sense to start with the thing that people are calling us about the most at the moment. And I don't even know what the close second is, but first place is certainly generative AI and chat GPT. So I, I'm going to let Ben start on this one. He spends he spent a good bit, so have I, but Ben spent some more time on this over the last, say, 60 days. Ben, you want to just start maybe with what you're hearing, what people are asking us and and where we're coming out, at least for the moment. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Good morning to, to our listeners, and always a pleasure to be here. So this is obviously one area that is evolving daily as firms start to explore the utilization and use cases for AI in their businesses. I think first and foremost, you know, they're trying to figure out from a legal compliance perspective, how do they want to let their staff use it. So one of the things that you know people are doing is some are just going as in you know going to case by case approval. Others are trying to incorporate more formality and, and allowing it and incorporating it into their analytics processes. And so you know having a policy if you're going to start using it beyond just tinkering is something that we are advising on on a regular basis and with the, with the understanding that these policies will need to evolve as the technology evolves and people's understanding of it evolve. The, the second thing that, that we're obviously focusing on is are you using an internal or the public version of the, of the process? And if you're using a public version, what you put in may be disclosed, not directly, but indirectly through, by teaching the models. So information that you don't want to have potentially shared out there in the public domain, you really want to consider whether or not you want to put that into the public version. And then if you're doing a private version of, of, the, of the AI technology, whether or not you know, you're, you're comfortable that whichever platform you've elected, that it, it is not going, to, even though your data may not become part of the responses that a public user could use, whether or not it's being used to train the models and are you comfortable and with that aspect of it. And then the last thing I'll mention, you know, at a high level before, you know, we can dive deeper into this with Peter as well, is, is disclosures, you know, and, and if you're going to start incorporating the AI tool into your research process, having appropriate disclosures to your investors about what that means and how you're using it, I think will become an important thing. It hasn't yet risen to the level of, of, of any, you know, things that we've seen in exams. Uh, around the AI, but certainly if you're looking around corners, something that you really want to consider as an AI user as part of your investment program. Let, let me ask you one, a couple questions. And first sure. is anyone banning it outright, saying, hey, 
for work purposes, you are not allowed to use generative AI. Anecdotally, I wouldn't say there's a full ban. I've not, I've not heard that any people just say, absolutely not. I'm not, I'm not allowing people to use it. That said, you know, I think at a minimum, people are saying, well, if you're going to use it for work, I'd like to know how you're using it. And you need to come get approval from the, from the legal compliance department. Others so are building it in I know, as a tool. I've seen the same. I think at the very outset, just in the first 48, 72 hours, some folks, just because it's easier, of course, as the compliance person to say, well, we're just not going to use it at all, because then you don't have to visit the myriad of issues you just set forth. Some folks said, can we ban it? Can we stop people from using it? But like most conversations we have with people around any kind of data that we discuss on these calls regularly, the thought of banning it does put you at a competitive disadvantage or arguably potentially put you at a competitive disadvantage. And that's why I think ultimately, I haven't seen anybody do that. And that's uh, large, small, and in-between size shops by AUM by number of people. I think all are doing what Ben has suggested, which is trying to figure out how your folks want to use it. And then based on how they want to use it, what policies and procedures and disclosures make sense for those use cases. So let's just talk about one of the early questions we got, and I think you and I better in the same place on this as are most, if not all other practitioners. Let's just take the hyperbolic to some extent example of someone who works in the finance department, Ben, at, at Amazon, and they post, they, they input while they're using chat GPT. They put in there Amazon's financial performance for the quarter just ended which financial performance has not yet been released to the public. And then I work at a fund manager and I cover Amazon and I'm using chat GPT and I plug in whatever I plug in and it yields this information. It yields what chat GPT tells me are the exact financial results for the quarter just ended, which results have not yet been released. And they look like they're in line. I think it looks credible on the analyst. Am I now restricted in Amazon because of what I've seen on ChatGPT? That's one of the questions I know you and I have been struggling with, and I think a lot of folks have been. But I think just I want to be a little bit biopic for a moment about the legal analysis around the MNPI issue that you're flagging, which is clearly that this in this hypothetical, the Amazon employee probably was not authorized, almost certainly not authorized to put up into the public, potentially the public domain, financial information that was material that was non-public about the firm. And they had a duty to their employers not, not to do so unless there was they were instructed by CEO. Fair context. Fair, fair, fair. All, let's, I stipulate as to all of that. Right. So so then the question becomes, you know, you know, what should you do? And then what would what would happen potentially in, in, if you if, if the SEC started investigating you or the Department of Justice? So if an analyst sees something that looks like information that is credible, and there's a jargon that we're all learning, but in the world of AI, there's something called hallucinating, which is where the AI gets creative and based on information it has, starts reaching conclusions. But those conclusions can be totally false. It can be hallucinating is what is what the, 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 technical, the technical folks are talking about, and, and, it, and it can be no, make no sense. But if, if the analyst sees, starts seeing credible information that looks based on all of his, his other research, at a minimum, he should be pausing and probably talking to somebody in compliance because there's at least an optical issue. However, as a technical matter, when we talk about the law, 
That information generally is accessible or would be accessible if it was put into the public version of the AI to anybody who asked questions about Amazon's financial performance and asked them the right way. And so we have other instances where this type of circumstance comes up that aren't exactly AI driven, where there was a public company that sent out you know, its financials and had a spreadsheet where yeah. somebody really smart could go behind the data and it, you know, what's called metadata and see a lot more information and detail than, than, the, than everybody else may have noticed. And then all of a sudden the company realized, oh my gosh, we sent out all this information with the metadata in it and they pulled it back. In right. such an instance, that data was became public. It's widely disseminated through the internet. And just because you were, were some an analyst that was a little bit more diligent and saw it doesn't mean that you can't use that information. It became public information, you know, through the dissemination by the issuer itself, albeit by mistake. Too bad, so sad, vis-a-vis the issuer. Too bad, so sad, vis-a-vis the government trying to prosecute that case. So I think the short answer, that was a long-winded way of saying, you shouldn't really have a problem if that analyst violated that duty and put it out there, but you really want to think about before you go ahead and trade, if you really think you got information that shouldn't really not out in the public domain. I agree with that analysis, which is convenient. I agree with that analysis. I think that as Ben and I always say, and we do a great deal of insider trading training around the country, really in the world now, we still in this country reward good old fashioned hard work. And insider trading laws in the US are not designed so that everyone sees the same information. Insider trading laws in the United States are designed so that everyone has the ability to see the same information. It's not a level playing field. Of course, the analyst at the hedge fund has more than the mom of four in Ohio trading her E-Trade account. She could see it all. She doesn't have time to find it all, but she could see it all. It's about access, not about viewing. And this is, I think, just another example of that. We always apply the basic tenets of securities laws in the United States to new technology. That's why our judicial system, at least in some people's minds, works so well, because it's precedential. And then the precedent is adapted to the new facts or the new technology. And that's what we have here, which is if I put in the right, right in air quotes, question into chat GPT, and it spits out credible financial performance information, going back to my example for Amazon, and of course, Amazon's just an example, proxy for the issue. Well, then I did a better job than others in searching, in researching, and I got better or different information. And that's a win for me. But what Ben said is important. As with any type, and then we'll move on, as with any type of material non-public information, if you get information that is screamingly material, by that, I mean, it's just super important and it seems really good. We should always pause and ask a question because if you trade while you're in possession of that screamingly material non-public information, well, maybe you're right and maybe you definitively win the case 100 times out of 100, but perhaps don't want to trade anyway because you just don't want to be in the soup and defending yourself even though you know you're in a pristine legal position. That's not to say you won't, but- As we always say, we just want folks on your teams to raise their hands when they come into contact with information that seems like, hey, that's really important. Forget what materiality means. That's really important. I care about that. I'm the analyst covering the name. And not only is it really important, but it seems like I'm the only one who has this or I haven't seen it out there in the public domain. 
right, Ben, anything else to add on, on chat? I think it's, it dovetails. One is not related, but one is. So it begs the question, what you're highlighting is, you know, you can query ChatGPT thousands of times a day, potentially, right? And so when do you save your queries and when don't you, right? Will be an important evidentiary issue when you have the fact pattern and it may happen that Peter, you know, went through. And so I think that's something that people are also struggling with is how to log this stuff and track it. It's like you don't track every Google search you do, right? So if that same information somebody put on the dark web and, and a Google search pulled it up, right? Because it got you know picked up through the normal internet channels. Like, are you some you know why is that any different than the than the Chat GPT result? And you didn't necessarily track every single Google search that everybody does. That's point one. Point two. The other thing that Chat GPT and this is not related to MMPI, but, but related to compliance issues. There's a lot of firms that you know you know build out risk models, build out tr trading models based on you know detailed and, and complex code that Chat GPT can create if, if you if you know how to use it. And so for those types of firms that are moving things more systematically, quantitatively, uh, they need to think about, you know, what is it that that the compliance manuals need to say about using ChatGPT to, to generate the code, how it gets checked, how it's confirmed that it's accurate. And then again, the last point, what are you telling your investors about how you're using it? So uh, I think that probably covers ChatGPT in the first 15, 20 minutes, but we can move on. I agree. Fantastic. Um, so, I just have one quick Quick point sure. of question there, Peter, Ben. I know it came up on the panel at the conference recently, but I guess the topic of or I guess consideration of copyright and how it relates to ChatGPT. Are there any maybe a regional, I guess, perspective on this? I know Japan recently obviously went all in on saying that copyright doesn't apply to AI training, but do you have any perspective on how copyright ties into ChatGPT? You know, it is a question mark that's out there. I don't know for, for the audience that it's necessarily the most relevant question in the sense of I what's agree. the risk, you know, that if you create something from based on content someone else created that happened to have been copyrighted, that they're going to necessarily come after you for it. I think that there are other vendors in this space that can potentially use chat GPT to replicate or modify information that was copyrighted. That does create risk for the vendor that some somebody the, the the original copyright owner would come after them and and claim civil actions, but I don't know that when we look about look at the totality of risks for the for investment advisory community who is using ChatGPT that that copyright is something that really jumps to the top of the list as far as risks to the firm. I agree with that. Look, generally from a copyright perspective, unless you're taking it and trying to do something commercial with it, the risk is pretty low, and our clients are just. They want to use the information to further inform themselves with respect to the prices of securities. They don't want to use it to, for example, compete with any particular issuer or commercial business out there, operating business out there. Fantastic. Thank you. So if we go next, it won't be much, but let's just talk about it because we've talked about it in other contexts. And I've seen it in two or three contexts now in the last 12 months, is this issue, Ben, of data degradation. What I mean by that is... Hey, I bought this data set from, and there are a lot of, this has happened to a couple of very large, we won't name them, vendors over the last six months. I bought this data set and now the vendor has come to me and said, one of the sources that on which they rely for the data that they repackage and sell on to me is no longer available to them. And maybe it's because of China, right? That's one example. Maybe China has outlawed a particular practice with its new privacy laws that makes that data no longer accessible. 
And so there are two aspects to this. We'll talk about the China aspect in a minute. But well, now what am I supposed to do, right? I paid X for the data. The data is supposed to include three data sources, three lines of data. Now one of them is gone. And I think it's perhaps the most valuable component of the data set I buy. What am I supposed to do? I just have to keep paying for it, even though I find it to be useless or much less useful. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a totally fair question. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the most prominent one that was out there was the, the uh, you know, the whole DTCC sale of trade data. And there's, you know, all kinds of claims that are happening around around this issue and people accusing DTCC of per- permitting other potential purchase of their data to trade ahead based on, you know, so somebody's unloading a block and you see that there's trading going on a particular name, you don't necessarily, it's all not, it was all anonymized, but you don't know, you know, you can get an indication and, and potentially then front run somebody is, somebody's trading in that position. You see that there's an indication of, of a large scale trading happening based on DTCC information. So then the question becomes, well, what, what do you do with the contract? You have to negotiate your contracts carefully. Oftentimes, you know, these are yep. at least your agreements. Sometimes, you know, if you're not careful, they auto renew. <laughs> There is no, you know, kind of material adverse change clause that says, hey, if the data changes materially, we get to cancel it. Something that now we all need to be thinking about when we're negotiating these contracts. If we talk to us two years ago, we're all focused on the reps. Get the reps, make sure that they support the diligence, make sure that they tell you that they are not violating a duty. Now you have a commercial issue that Peter's alluding to, which is, okay, do I have a termination right if, if the data changes in a way that's material? And it's and it's disproportionately material to what I originally thought I was purchasing. I agree with Ben. This wasn't as front of mind as data provenance reps, PII reps, and we did care about it. We did think about it, but look, this sounds like the full time employment act for the outside lawyer or or the inside. This is why it's really important to negotiate these contracts. So we've had a couple of clients stuck with ongoing million dollar, several hundred thousand dollar fees for data and this degradation has happened. And we've written those aggressive letters to those data vendors saying, hey, what we bought is no longer what you're giving us. And for the most part, those vendors have said, well, we expected to supplement to essentially replace that missing data with data that's just as good, if not even better, really soon, so bear with us. And we've bared with them for a little while. But ultimately, the litigators think, you have a reasonably good position, to stop making a future payment. If you've already made your payment, I haven't seen an example yet where you're getting that money back because if they give it back to you, they're going to give it back to everybody. And that sort of just blows up the data vendor, right? These are not large companies for the most part. So if you haven't, look, it's what you learned in third grade, possession is nine tenths of the law. If you haven't paid for the data yet, or you have significant payments yet still to make, you will withhold those payments. You will write a letter, put your chip down, state your position and withhold those payments. If you've already made the payments, I think that's, that's a sunk cost. And you need to just think about not making future payments or trying to limit them. Because remember, the data may still have value. It just has less value. So instead of being worth $500,000 a year, I'm oversimplifying, you think it's worth $250,000 a year. So try to renegotiate with the vendor if you think the data still has value and find a way going forward. We should all think about this as we negotiate agreements going forward. But with what's going on in China, and the privacy laws there tightening, and the ability to access geolocation and other types of data potentially tightening, we are going to see this more and more. And so you need to be mindful of it when your data scientists come to you and say, hey, wait, this this is not nearly as good as it was six months ago when we bought it. 
oh my gosh, what do we do? And you'll get a bit of panic in those conversations. And like I said, we've seen a handful of them already in the last six months. Ben, anything else there? No, I think that's right. And like, I think there's going to be some types of data that become more challenging. I mean, geolocation data is, is, a, is a political hot potato in the sense of privacy laws, right? And so while I think we as practitioners have gotten more comfortable with geolocation data for a number of reasons, including the fact that consents to allow people to give the data over have become much more prominent on platforms, there may be political ones that say, you know, we don't want this data being shared, sold, tracked, and privacy laws could, could hinder the ability to receive some of that information. I agree. Delon, anything else you want to add there? Nothing from that side, but I guess well, the question that came in internally before the call was on the okay, expert networks in particular um, and how they relate to China. If you want to sort of relate back to what you... Ben, ben I know you spoke on week. this last week, generally on expert networks and how, how we're all sort of revisiting maybe some of those issues we first visited about 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily China-specific. Obviously, right. I agree. You know, there's potentially... Let cost uh, as a matter of you know culture and custom potentially some more risk around around China because they they may be more this historically and this is this is not in any way to be discriminatory just a different practice around how business information is shared in that market and so you know when you're dealing with experts that are you know from China you you really want to be more cautious particularly to the U.S. consumer who it is that's participating what their relationships are. I mean, just anecdotally, I had something where someone was uh, was was talking about from a broker dealer that was on a call around a company that was in the Chinese tech sector, and they said, "Look, you know, people. There's rumors have it that you know the, the company just made a big order or something like that." And when we asked the individual who happened to have been an expert who was from China, "Oh no, we just heard rumors," and and you know, it wasn't and would not give any kind of real specificity. So it became an uncomfortable situation for the client who, who had, wow, I maybe need to restrict because I can't get clarity as to where this information is coming from and it is material and it was not public. And so that is clearly something to, to consider. I think more broadly, though, as far as expert networks, I think it's the SEC. The reason it's in focus because the SEC is, is bringing it up on exams again. I think our view is most of the top flight expert networks are really good at compliance. Most of our clients have, who are using expert networks have very robust policies and procedures, and we have not really seen, as an anecdotal matter, major efficiency citations from the SEC around people's utilization of expert networks because of the consolidation of the industry that took place kind of post the great financial crisis, and only those that were you know, uh, adhering to very robust and appropriate compliance procedures at the expert network are the ones that have thrived and survived. I agree with that. I don't think it's gotten worse. I don't think it's degraded at all. I think the cleanup from years ago is still there. I think the one thing before we move on that merits a little discussion is, how do you feel about this concept of reading the transcripts rather than going on the call? So years ago, compliance folks said, well, it's better if we just use the transcripts rather than go on the calls, because if there's something in the transcripts, compliance can catch it before we pass it along to people, whereas before we pass it along to business folks, whereas if the business folks are on the call, the the cat's out of the bag. They've heard the call. So now we've got these transcripts. We've got hard copies of these calls as books and records of the advisor. Are we now starting to see a move the other way? Is that bad now to have them in writing? Because now you're sort of stuck with them in your books and records? Look, I think it depends on how you how your firm utilizes them and how what the process is. Like, I think if you have a compliance person, 
reviewing them before it goes to the investment professional. That's probably the, the safest thing to do. And that doesn't create any more risk. It probably is the least risky approach, you know, whether that's your internal, external compliance function that's helping you helping you with that. I think part of what you're, you know, suggesting is that's pretty much why the SEC this, they, they, these transcripts are causing us to re-evaluate. Re, re yeah, I agree. That's what I think. That's really what what it is. And the reason for that is because they they you know they caught some uh, one or two cases where it looked like somebody had said something on a call, and because it's in a transcript, it can you know it can review it, re-review it, and then it may have looked like information that that person wasn't authorized to have communicated in the interview. And so you know that's where the renewed focus has come from, not so much on the, on the telephone calls. With the experts, because it's all, that's all tracked in a very robust way. I think if you just allow your your investment teams to have it without some sort of review by some some compliance function, it does add risk. I don't. I'm not sure. Just as a matter of my experience, that I view that as being extraordinarily high. But certainly, we've seen enough instances where information that wasn't appropriate to be shared was was found in those transcripts. Yeah, for many years. We reviewed our team, Ben and my team reviewed transcripts on behalf of a client from a very reputable provider. They were about 15-page single-spaced transcript. And I would say in 10%, we tracked this actually. So it was about 10, 12, something like that percent of transcripts we redacted. When we would redact, it would be a very small percentage of the actual transcript we would redact. But it showed good policy and, and procedure for the manager to show the staff that we look at these from a compliance perspective before we even let the analysts see them. And yes, we do redact, not often, but when we hear something that sounds troubling, we redact. Now, in many instances, if you had done the work, you probably did to, to re research what it is that troubled you. You probably didn't need to redact, but there's a cost-benefit analysis there. And if you redact four sentences and the analyst isn't all that interested in those four sentences, then it's probably fine. It's probably maybe... A, overly cautious, but less expensive to just redact. If the analyst then read the transcript and saw the redacted sentence, didn't see the sentence, but that there was a redaction and said, oh, wait, that's critical to me. What's that sentence say? Then maybe we would do a little more work and see if, in fact, we had been too cautious of redacting. But look, I agree with Ben. The reason that we're seeing exams and the staff care a little bit more to think about expert networks is, I think, at least in part, the fact that these transcripts now exist. It's common practice to get written transcripts rather than participate on the call. And so it's part of the books and records. They are part of the books and records the staff is looking at. Great. Delon, Thanks very much for that. For yeah, that. short one here. Just um, a question came in, actually, just related to DTCC. I'll read it out and you can answer live. So could the concerns related to DTCC not apply to other data products in the flow category? Surely people use this data uh, as a means to get an advantage in the market. And this category was not scored very highly on the risk based framework? Short answer is yes, but I, it's hard to answer that in, in, in a vacuum where you don't have like context of what the actual data set is that you're questioning. I mean, the thing about DTTC that made it so prominent is DT every, in the US in particular, and, and, and there's DTCC Europe as well. Like everything, all trade data, all now it's ex post, right? It's after the fact, flows through and clears through the, the DTCC system. And so it's not that you could front run in the sense of, take the data that you see from DTCC after trades with me, because that's the clearance and settlement process, and front run it. It's that what the the signals that were, that were being provided when you see that in, in very close to real time, and it's, at, and, it's, and it's real information that's on trades that are happening in the market 
and you could just dissect it and, and, and you know, take it after the fact. There's tons of trade data information, some of which becomes as more of a time lag, which I think is less problematic. You know, that you, you like S&P sells their information, all the exchanges sell their information on trading. You know, could that come into light, to light next that exchange people buy exchange information? Maybe. I mean, but it just depends on the, on the issue of, of timing. I think the timing question on the DTC situation was the biggest problem with it. Not so much that the information was out there. Thank you, Ben. Spent just five minutes, Ben, on SEC exam focus for established and new funds. So we are seeing more and more, it's fair to say, that exams cover data. I think it's close to becoming a routine part of examinations. And as we've pounded the table for years, and we'll just do it very briefly right now, what that means is when the staff comes in, and we've heard from Adam Storch, who runs the SEC's task force, for lack of a better word, that focuses on alternative data. When the SEC comes in, they need to see a DDQ with respect filled out by each vendor. They need to see some sort of compliance memo showing that post receipt of the DDQ from the vendor, you did some further diligence. Generally, it's a phone call and a one or two page summary. Sometimes it's more than that of that phone call. And then number three, a contract, obviously, between you and the vendor that contains robust representations and warranties around data provenance and PII. And so for each vendor with whom you do business, you should have in your files for the SEC to review when they're there and they'll sample on a random basis, presumably on a random basis, the DDQ filled out by the vendor, your diligence memo post-DDQ pre-contract signing, and the contract you sign with the vendor. One thing that perhaps Ben, 60 seconds from you on is because I think everyone's got that part down, right? We've said that enough that I think everyone or most folks are doing that correctly. But how often do we need to refresh, right? What is your green, yellow, red triage for refreshing the DDQ and the diligence memo? Not the contract, of course, but the DDQ and the diligence memo on each vendor. So the short answer, I think, I think the best practice is you know the SEC will be like at least on an annual basis and. And they unfortunately won't give guidance on you know risk-based uh, approach. They, I think, Adam has you know said he's comfortable, although that's his views, not the commission's, right? With sort of a risk-based analysis of your different data vendors, and it's and it, but they le- leaving it up to the to the managers to kind of assess what that actually means. So maybe maybe it could be longer. Obviously, if there's something in the news, um, if you've set up adverse news alerts or or, or litigation. <laughs> Or with respect to a vendor and something is comes across, that is probably a signal, if not definitively a signal, that you should be reaching out to that vendor. Similar to what happened with it. When App Annie hit, everybody called up. And I'm gonna probably gonna misremember the sensor tower. And yep, you got it right. What, what do you do differently? Right. And that's that's good, right? I mean, not that that probably drove Center Tower crazy, but the point is that that's the kind of signal that you should say, okay, I need to, I need to start looking at that the, the kind of app data vendors that I have in my roster, and I probably should reach out to them and have them a call and, and take notes as to why the, that the app any back pattern was not relevant to what I'm doing. Otherwise, right, think from the staff's perspective, staff comes in six months later, you're still doing business with Sensor Tower, Apptopia, and maybe even App Annie, and the staff says, you're still doing business with them. And you say, well, yeah, it seemed like you cleaned that up, SEC, you did a good job. That's not a compelling answer, right? The compelling answer, of course, is when you see there's a problem with a particular type of data, you should be looking at whether you use that data and not only the vendor who maybe got in trouble or is getting in trouble or is subject to adverse 
is the subject of adverse news stories, but anyone, as Ben says, who, who does what they do, anyone who's in the same grouping within your data vendor set should be re-examined from a diligence perspective. And yeah, it drove Sensor Tower crazy. But if I recall correctly, they put out like a two-pager because it was driving them so crazy. And they sent to everyone, hey, here's why and how we're doing things differently and well. And if you had some follow-up questions, you asked them. But look, a lot of this seems like, to the non-compliance folks, seems like redundant, but the SEC just doesn't see it that way. So we may think, hey, this is overkill, but it doesn't matter. The staff wants to see that with respect to data, you're doing a very healthy job at diligencing your vendors pre and post onboard. Delon, anything for us there? Nothing on my side. I think it's quite a robust background on that. I think uh, I just put out a final I guess, request for any questions from attendees. And I guess if there's nothing left on that, maybe, I guess we're, we're receiving still a lot of data-specific, data-category-specific questions on you know, web scraping, for example. And I know Ben and Peter, you are as well. I'm not sure if you want to touch on that before we wrap up. I mean, in terms of web scraping, I mean, there's some, you know, there's, there's some cases out there that are floating around. I mean, the, the Ryanair case is certainly something that's, you know, people that we're still paying attention to. Just a reminder for folks, that is uh, Ryanair is an Irish airline. They sued booking.com, again, under the same statute that the LinkedIn IQ case was using, which is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, saying, you know, you you, you violated the that statute and therefore we you, know, you need to be held responsible. And there's damages because you were taking our pricing and then putting it on your own website, booking.com, and undercutting our prices and causing our business to suffer losses. And so if that case, you know, but, but the key that, that, that at least as alleged is, you know, is that booking.com saying, well, we didn't do it, you know, but we we had we had vendors that would go scrape, but we didn't actually do the scraping ourselves. And so something to think about is if you're you know using third-party scraping vendors, what are you know really again we've told you we've said this before, but it's really important to understand their scraping practices and how they go about doing it because Ryanair is alleging well you couldn't have gotten the prices unless you logged into an authentication gateway in, in our website, and the allegation that they've said is well you, you know the the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act says well you can't do indirectly what you can't do directly. So you can't just hire somebody to do what you wouldn't otherwise be able to do by yourself. And so that's where that- By the way, of, I always think that makes you look worse, right? Of course. Trying to circumvent and have someone else do it for you makes you look more sinister than you have it, if you had done it yourself. But it's allegations right now. We, we have a complaint. We don't have a decision of a court, right? To, to sort of say, okay, you know, this is, they found the facts as being credible and and and, and that RyanBookings.com actually did what Ryanair says they did. So- We'll continue to watch this space. There are, you know, people thinking about web scraping in terms of other issues outside of MMPI. That if someone is doing it significantly enough, could they actually make civil, you know, be subject to civil claims? I, I'm just personally skeptical that 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 in the investment yeah. advisory space, that there's going to be a bunch of lawsuits made against investment advisors because the first thing you're going any any company does when they have an issue with it with someone is they send a cease and desist letter because the cost of litigation is really high. And so you and and so if any of our clients got anything like that, the piece of advice that we first give is well then you stop the scraping of that website and it would be over. So I'm not so sure that you know maybe there are vendors that get sued. So if somebody's making a lot of money web scraping and then selling their data for a lot of money, that could be something where a bunch of websites go ahead and sue somebody again, which is you know bookings.com and Ryanair. That's a wrap for this episode of Profiting from Data. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is brought to you by Eagle Alpha, the pioneer in alternative data. 
To learn about Eagle Alpha's solutions for data vendors and buyers, please visit eaglealpha.com.